Currently, it is estimated that only 28% of employees in the technology industry are women. A recent Corn Ferry study found that unless we get more workers into the technology industry by 2030, the U.S. could miss out on over $160 billion of annual revenues. Moving forward, can successful technology companies afford to not be successful at recruiting and retaining women? I'm Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. In this episode, we're going to discuss this uncomfortable reality that women remain underrepresented in the tech industry. But more importantly, we're going to discuss what we as technology leaders can do to address this challenge. And for those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we are a for-profit research institute. We track the financial performance of the largest publicly traded technology providers on the planet. And more importantly, we perform deep operational benchmarking with these technology companies that are on the TSIA platform. It is that data that informs the insights you will hear in this series. Now, today I'm very excited. I'm joined by Eva Helen, who has the distinct honor of being the first non-TSIA employee to participate in this series. Uh, Eva, you will be one of our keynoters at the upcoming TSIA conference in Vegas later this October. And Eva, you've spent time as a woman executive in the technology industry. What is your past and, and where are you now? Great to be here, Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. I think, um, let me give you a little bit of a sort of a journey. I, I was born and raised in Sweden and came over a half a lifetime ago. I didn't even know that Silicon Valley existed. That's how much I was not interested in technology back then. But I lived in San Jose, spent a lot of time in Santa Cruz surfing and having a good time. But I kept returning and eyeing all these big companies in this big place that I was told was called Silicon Valley. And I thought, hmm, I really like it here. Maybe somebody wants somebody like me. And I was done with my education. So said and done, um, I started knocking on doors and eventually landed a job after a lot of visa issues, as you can imagine. It wasn't so bad back then, but it was still a challenge. And based on the number of languages I spoke, I was able to land a job in sales, selling hardware for a company down in Santa Clara. And it was an amazing start of a, of a career that became half a life for me. I learned everything about how business was done in the US. I learned everything about technology. I would go and spend time with the people that were actually building the products to understand how they worked and where they sat in the back then servers and so on. And one thing led to the next. I was recruited to come home and work for a startup in Boston that was basically a distribution company, but we developed a software arm and uh, were acquired just a couple of years later. Uh, so that was uh, both me and the, and the co-founder of that software company were very young. So we learned a ton very, very quickly, made a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes, but we're determined to make it bigger and better the next time around. So we started Sambolic in 2000, which was an enterprise software company. We built distribution, basically distributed data centers before cloud. So, you know, on-premise geo-distributed solutions for enterprise customers. 
And we ran that for 15 years and then we were acquired by Citrix. So I have lived <laughs> the life of an entrepreneur as a very much solo woman in a very male dominated space for close to two decades. And most of the time I loved it. That's great. I mean, in, as I listen to you, I mean, it, it is a classic sort of Silicon Valley pedigree, right? Small companies, startups, larger companies. I mean, the whole gamut, right? So, the, so that's, that's fantastic. And, and, and now, so you have this, this, this website, right? Um, I think it's called EQ Inspiration. And, um, and if you go there, it has this very provocative but fair statement that it basically says this. When, when very little happens after 20 years of effort, it is time to try new tactics. So, so I want to start this discussion with you by exploring some of the new tactics that, that your firm is advocating for now. And I want to start with a tactic you and I discussed the first time we talked, and it's about getting in front of the guys. And, and you told me that you didn't want to spend all your time huddling with other women in tech, talking about the challenges of being a woman in tech, that you wanted to spend time in front of the men in tech, helping them understand how they can be more effective helping their women colleagues. So, so let's explore this tactic. What should companies be doing to get the attention of, of this male-dominated workforce? So the one thing that I think is really important here is that I grew up in technology when women were supposed to be like guys to be successful. That's still the case in a lot of places, but not everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I was equally blind or unaware and made the same perhaps mistakes that many men are making or have made, or there was a lack of responsibility when it came to perhaps recruiting minorities. And I want to be clear with that. I'm no different than the audience that I'm addressing. So there is no judgment in any of the tactics that I'm using. I'm trying to meet every person where they are. Mm -hmm. But let me take a step back. So when we had finished working at Citrix, I thought, what can I do now? The kids kind of kicked me out and said, you need to go and do something because you're making us crazy when you're at home because I'd never been at home. <laughs> um, and so I started running to a lot of networking events for women in tech particularly women in business, women in sales, and fantastic gatherings. There's so many women that are out there supporting each other. And I will be the first one to pick up new mentees. I'm constantly supporting women, women entrepreneurs, and so on, women in their careers, always, always supporting women. And I spoke at a lot of events. But I also felt that there were no men present at these events where a lot of women were talking about how can we actually improve the situation for ourselves. So... I asked a few people, if I start something called Women in Tech, an event for guys, will you attend? And they said, absolutely, yes. We just don't really know where to begin and where to start. So said and done, I ran my first series of events about three years ago, continued up until about uh, when COVID started. And at these events, I would have more than 50%, usually 55% um, male audience. And they were either dragged there by a woman who I had encouraged to bring a man <laughs> yeah. along, or they were actually interested. Okay. So it was a man. And 
I wouldn't, you know, we would have experts speaking and I would have women speaking, but the key thing is I would have men on stage talking about things they were doing to improve the situation for a woman on their team or for their entire team or for maybe for their whole organization. So you were working really hard to make it very personal to them, what what they were doing. Very personal and very positive. Mm-hmm. It was incredibly important. Four years ago was when when the whole Me Too movement kind of flared up, and there is a lot of um, respect to that and a lot of a lot of seriousness to it. But I also felt that we needed to shine a light on good stories and good initiatives. And I wanted to create a place where men could be comfortable asking questions that perhaps they weren't asking elsewhere and letting them feel that it's okay to not ever have supported a woman and still be interested in how to start. They could do that. Yeah, Yeah. they could do that. Mm -hmm. And so there is definitely a place and a space for women to meet and discuss things without guys being present. I think that's super important. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is also a place and a space where it should be mixed and where men should be invited and more comfortable and not feel like uh, they're being judged. Like, yeah, exactly right. They're not under a microscope. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, that's great. So, so, so this tactic of, of bringing the men to the table with, with, with their, their women peers, making it more personal for them. And then in your journey here, you've, you've created a framework, a matrix with different characters, and you discuss the advocates, the allies, and the chauvinists. So can you help our listeners understand these three characters? So when I had done these interviews on stage, I thought there must be so many more of these stories. So let me figure out um, what it actually looks like. It's 60 hour long interviews with different men in tech from CEOs to individual contributors, everything from uh, VCs, investors to sales reps to engineers. And then I took all of that material and looked for patterns. And I was able to identify seven, what I call character prototypes. And as you're saying, then I created, it's, it's a matrix, or if you think about it as a ladder, okay. different steps. And so what I looked at was men's kind of awareness around equality. How did it, how did they refer to it? Was it something that they had been thinking about their whole life? Were they aware of it because maybe their mother was working or not? Is it something that they discovered in college or where did it come from? Or was it in the first place that they worked? And then I looked at their willingness to help and support women and minorities. And then I looked at what actions were they actually taking? And so these seven character prototypes kind of emerged to me. Mm -hmm. And the top three I call the advocates. um, And I've given them the names, Mark, James, and Samir. And then the next three, they're allies and they're called Memo, Cree and Al. And then our chauvinist is called Richard. And the two top categories are a little bit easier to deal with, but it's really important not to neglect the guy at the bottom because I think a lot of us know somebody like that. And maybe- This is Richard uh, that you're talking about? Yeah. yeah, and, and, yeah and, and it's, you know, I call him the chauvinist, but you know, we really need to think about this a little bit. Like everybody has the potential to grow. And mm-hmm. the motivators for every level is very different. So the guy at the bottom, he might not be motivated by, you know, oh, how can I change the world? But rather by the data that you just presented in the very beginning. Maybe he mm-hmm. sits on a huge budget. Maybe his, he actually gets concerned about what happens if I don't start recruiting more diverse um, mm-hmm. 
people so that I can get some innovation and some more creativity into our team. Maybe that's what speaks to him. So the motivation levels are very, very different. The allies, if you group them together, you can think of them as people who are very enthusiastic about wanting to help, but perhaps don't really know what to do. So maybe not as effective. They, they, they have the energy, but they're just maybe not as effective because they don't know how to, how to effectively engage here. Yeah, they're, 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 especially the middle one of those three. He'll say, yeah, I love to work with women. It's great. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not really sure if I'm helping in any way, but just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there is no, there's no negativity. The, the bottom one of those three allies, Cree, he's, he usually doesn't even know that he's supporting somebody or helping somebody, but often he will be helping somebody. Uh, perhaps he's looking out for the woman on his team. Maybe he's worked with a female SE for the past seven years and he doesn't even think of it as he knows their partners and they've always, you know, they work together for a long time but he doesn't really think about that he plays an important role in supporting her when they go in on a customer site, when he constantly turns and says, well, she knows the answer to that. She knows the answer to that. She knows the answer to that. And so I want to make him more aware of what he's doing so he can do more of it. Mm -hmm. And for those three allies, the ones that are sitting in the middle, they are still a little bit more focused on themselves than focused on somebody else. Okay. Many others. They have a little bit more of a concern around supporting women because they're concerned that somebody might misinterpret their actions. Mm -hmm. The advocates, on the other hand, that are at the top of the matrix, they're very self-confident. They have, you know, had either long careers or they've been exposed to to very many differences or even been bullied themselves or whatnot but they are, have turned their focus away from themselves and turned it outwardly so the first one of those three characters is the man who's sponsoring women he focuses on one woman at a time he identifies her he lifts her he promote provides introductions to other people he's constantly Uh, working on behalf of somebody else. And he doesn't worry about what anybody else thinks about that. The Mm -hmm. one above him, James, is typically a leader um, who then perhaps builds a team of a 50-50. He makes sure he gets people from different backgrounds and definitely, you know, not just women, but people from minorities and so on. And he builds a solid, diverse team and runs a successful business. And so you would think, well, he's doing it all, right? What else can mm-hmm. he do? And well, what else can you do? There's, there's one more. There is one more. <laughs> he can let everybody know. He can let people okay. know. He can become a role model. He can speak about his successes, his experiences, how good things are going for him on the innovation front, for example, because he has this mixed team. So he's letting other people know. And then at that point, he becomes Mark, who's at the very top. And Mark is really an expert. It could, Mark can also be, you know, somebody like that has lived it all, done it all, and is starting to talk about it more. And is that face outward and is that culture changer for the organization? Or he is actually, you know, an outside consultant or HR expert. And, and so, and I imagine that you gave these sort of profiles names so that it could be more relatable. To, to, to guys as they're, as they're listening to James's story and Mark's story, et cetera. And, and I think one of the things that you, you talked about is that if, if you 
if you're learning about these profiles and that once you've identified, you know, you can relate to one of the characters that you then can act and move up to the next level in the matrix, right? To the next character prototype. Um, so I assume that there's a second tactic here that would help men understand the, the specific role they are playing and when they interact you know, with their female peers. Yeah, I don't know you very well, but let me ask you a question. Do you like it when people tell you what to do? <laughs> um, I hey, like everybody, I love that. Isn't that, doesn't everybody love that? <laughs> you see? So, so here's the trick to that tactic. I'm not mm -hmm. going to tell anybody what to do. Okay. But I'm going to ask, do you want to do a little bit more for a woman inside your organization? And you should, hopefully you say yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I say, well, let's figure out which character prototype you identify with. And maybe you say, mm, I think I'm a Samir. I feel closest to him, maybe a little bit of Mammal and Samir combined. Okay, why don't you go and read about what James is already doing in the areas of management, leadership, and culture. And there in the book, I present examples that come from my interviews of what a typical James is already doing. And therefore, you have a starting point. It's not super comprehensive. It's not, you know, pages and pages. It's really meant to trigger thought in your head about what the guy above you is already doing and what you could do to grow as a leader, a manager, an instigator of culture change inside your organization or your team. But no, I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. Well, well, as I listen to that, I, I mean, I think so to that point, right? So instead of saying, hey, hey, Thomas, here's the four things that I think you should go do, you know, that you're not doing or whatever. This, this is giving somebody a role model. This is saying, look, here's a role model. And I, I think, you know, and being a guy, I mean, that's something I, I think men look for all the time is they, is they, they, they gravitate toward role models that they, that they can, you know, they say, hey, I really aspire to be more like that. So I, I think that's a brilliant tactic. Um, so um, kudos to you for, uh, for, for landing on that one. And the, um, let me, and, let me, let me add yeah. one thing yeah. there. Um, I think you're right. And the, the, the big difference here in the way that I'm doing this versus what's available today is that our role models are very close to us in this particular way of working. So mm -hmm. nothing is unattainable. Like you can always reach the next level. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask somebody who starts as a Cree to become Mark. I'm just going to say, if you want to do a little bit or a lot more, climb up to what Al is doing. So your role model is just close enough for you to reach that level. Yeah. Well, I would say relatable and attainable yes. is what I yes. just heard. They're relatable and attainable. Those are yes. the two things. And then once really you reach that, you can look at the next one and then the yeah. next right. one, but you don't have to get, because I think that with a lot of the workshops that are available and, and the trainings that um, all of us have to go through, we get thrown into a room and we get one message and one message does not necessarily resonate with everybody. We lose no. you know, 90% of our audience as soon as we walk into the room. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a great point. And, and, and again, just listening to you, um, again, even myself on this topic, I, I am, you know, just, it's very comfortable, right? I feel like what you're putting on the table is something that, you know, uh, you know, I, I can relate to you very quickly. So I think that's fantastic. So, so I want to keep pushing on these, these, 
these tactics though. Um, and, and another uh, one that you have uh, put on the table is you, you advocate that we should move responsibility for workforce diversity from HR to the individual contributor. So, so what do you mean by that? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I, I mean what my husband says that I'm a little bit crazy, but it's that <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that there's a lot of, I think that there is familiar, familiarity in a lot of that discussion. What, what, what's going on in, in a typical IT organization today is still that you have uh, your line role managers that are responsible for the business, and then you have a bunch of supporting roles. And HR is a supporting role and initiatives that come from and through HR or diversity and inclusion, because a lot of companies now have a diversity and inclusion officer, their programs and processes in place. And there's a lot of things that actually work well. I still don't think that this should be a separate track from our business track. I believe that the responsibility for building diverse team with an inclusive culture should fall on the line managers. So mm -hmm. if you're a sale a VP of sales and you're running your sales team, it's your responsibility to pick this up and run this inside your team pro I mean everything that you're doing with your team. It shouldn't be run as something separate. It shouldn't be seen as something that, you know, if I'm an, a senior VP of sales, I shouldn't get up and say, oh, well, I'm going to let HR solve this whole diversity thing. I'm going to let um, our diversity manager to create, you know, create more programs that I can have my sales guys go through now and then. No, no, no. Because the sales guys don't have time for that. Nobody right. has time. That's the thing. So if you're making it part of your everyday talk, and you are doing the little things that are recommended by guys who are already doing it. For example, you know, you're in the sales pitch, you know, the, there, a woman comes in, somebody says, oh, she's hot. And then everybody else kind of laughs. Everybody knows that that's the way it goes in many places. And that's just not okay. And I can say it's not okay. And maybe the manager can say it's not okay, but I want the individual guy, the guy who doesn't feel comfortable with a scenario like that to kind of say, come on guys, that's not all right. Mm -hmm. We don't roll like that anymore in here. That's not, that's not cool. We need that woman and we need all of her friends to come and join us here and work with us because we're going to become so much stronger as a sales team. Yeah. So we can't sit around and wait for somebody else to do the job for us. And by us, I mean like guys in this particular case, they, every single person has to take their own individual responsibility, but also be very comfortable doing so. Yeah. Well, you know, as I listen to you, and this, this is maybe a, a strange uh, analogy, but this struck me. My father grew up in operations at U.S. Steel, so he's involved in a lot of different plans. And, you know, at one point in all these plants, there's this issue of safety. Right. And, and, and plants would have a safety officer, just like, you know, diversity inclusion team. And, and when you have a plant where people are like, well, that's not my job. That's the safety officer in their team. They care about safety. I'm just sitting here doing my job. Then guess what? Not a very safe plant. But when that responsibility, when you really ingrain every worker and every frontline manager to walk around going, no, that, that's actually my responsibility. I have ownership around the safety of this plan. People behave differently and have a safer plan. I think it's the same analogy. You can't push that, that responsibility somewhere else and think that it's magically going to get done when it's something that is really critical 
It's the way the company operates. And this is something, this is a topic that is critical to the way the company operates. I love that. You totally get it. I love it. No, seriously, that's <laughs> best analogy. Awesome. Fantastic. I'm going to use it every day from yeah. now. Well, and I, the reason I think it's a good one is because, you know, it took a long time yeah. for that to catch on within plants. So that's why, that's why I was listening to you. I'm like, this is the same exact dynamic. People really have to take that ownership. So that, that's good. So, so, you know, so we're talking about these, these, these tactics and, and I think, you know, there's, there's no doubt that we need to be pursuing tactics that are going to drive, you know, overall diversity in the technology industry. And I want to shift gears on you a little bit here because we are a research institute and I want to shift the conversation to data. So, so TSI has been polling the industry on diversity practices and I want to share just some of those data points and just get your honest reaction. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share a data point and, and tell you what the answers are. And I just want you to tell me, you know, do you feel that that is good, you know, for the, for the industry right now, bad or, or indifferent? Okay, you're ready to, ready to react here? Does it have to be really like super fast and, and or? No, 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 no. You can take your time. I just, right. I just, want, I just want honest reaction here. Okay. So, so here's, here's the, the, the first data point and it's related to job postings. So here's the question. Does your company scrub job postings to remove bias or non-inclusive language? And 89% of the companies said yes, 11% said no. So sort of a 90-10 rule. This seems to be a very common practice. What, what's your reaction? That's good. You're good? And, and, yeah, and no, you I, are, are you surprised at how many companies are doing that now? No, because it's easy to do. Okay. It's super easy. Yeah. I mean, that's it's like if I'm talking to a company and they say, well, we can't seem to find women. There are not enough women in the pipeline. Yeah. That's the first thing I ask. Look at your job postings. What yeah. do they say? And also, are you listing your benefits on your website? Yeah. And so it sounds like companies are getting that, 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 that has caught on that. Yeah. Which I, yes. I think is good. That's great. Okay. So here is um, the next one. Your company scrubs indicators that give clues to race or gender before sending the application to the hiring manager. And 73% of companies say, no, we're not doing that. 27% said yes. So this is really almost a 70-30 rule in the negative, right? Very few companies are scrubbing indicators uh, on race and gender before they give it to the hiring manager. So what's your reaction on this one? Uh, this one really depends because if you are, I guess it depends on how big of a job, um, HR is doing or the scrubbers are doing, because if they are scrubbing away information, that's actually important. So if I, like, if I really want a person of color, because I don't have a person of color on my team, Mm -hmm. maybe then I need to tell HR, I want 50% 50% of the applications to be from people of color mm-hmm. before you scrub them and I can take a look at them. So this one is a lot more difficult. This is more nuanced. Yeah. This is much more nuanced. And, and, and the same thing, if I'm, um, if I'm looking for, this gets into the question also of hiring on, you know, experience and talent, um, because we know that, men and women write their applications very differently. Women are very specific and will never write something on their application unless they've mastered it 152%, mm-hmm. right? They're very, and I'm generalizing like crazy, yeah. but they're, they're very adamant about only saying this, I have done this, I have achieved this. 
while some, not all, but some men are much more comfortable, uh, perhaps exaggerating a little bit or saying that they have- We're painting in broader strokes, I think. They're they're, they're more comfortable painting in broader strokes. Yes. So if I know that I'm comparing two applicants and I know that one is a man and one is a woman, I will look at them if I'm a good hiring manager a little bit differently and know (laughs) that one may be a little over the top and one a little bit under. So- it's a compliment. Oh, I, I, I love the answer. I mean, again, I mean, I think a lot of these practices and the reason I really wanted to get your, your insights here is that, uh, again, technology companies are asking us, hey, what about this practice? What, you know, how many people are doing this? And so I, I think getting you know, feedback on what practice, you know, on approaching some of these practices is really important for our audience. So let me, let me, I have another one teed up. Okay. Right. So, so here's the question. When making a hire, you hire for culture fit or you hire for culture ad, 76% said culture fit, only 24% said culture ad. So again, almost an 80-20 rule here. Most people looking for, for culture fit, not culture ad. What's your reaction to that one? Uh, it depends on how they define culture. Seriously. Yeah. And if they have, um, you know, if, if it is a, <sighs> this one's also very tricky. If a company has their values down, and their values are um, including diversity and inclusion, meaning we do, uh, it's part of our culture to build out diverse team and to foster inclusion and belonging, Mm -hmm. then yes, of course you wanna hire people that fit into that culture because you want more of that. Mm -hmm. The downside is if you have a culture that's very sort of stale and firm and we all hire, you know, from our own old fraternities and we hire from our our old, you know, my old colleague and this guy I've worked with three companies in a row. And well, if that's the culture, then it's not as great. Or well, in my yeah. Well, see, in my reaction to, to this one, because I, again, I think it is more nuanced, but I think the challenge in tech is that the majority of the cultures, whether we like it or not, are, are the one you just described. Yes. And, and so, so, so I think, so I think, that, case, right. you know, don't yeah. be afraid to hire against your culture. Right. And so maybe exactly. culture, maybe culture is not, um, you know, the right, the right wording term, right, right. But don't hire somebody who is just like yourself. It's interesting. You know, I've got one stories in the book where the guy goes, Oh, you know, I was, I really wanted to hire another Tom or John or Mark. And then I looked around the table and we had two Johns and two (laughs) two Toms and two Marks. And that's the thing. Don't hire more people who look like you and talk like you and act like you and have the same background. Hire somebody who will question everything you do. Then you'll make some progress. Yeah. And and I do think that that is the opportunity for for the industry at this point in time, more more culture add for sure. So so let me give you another one. So, So this is a question around, does your organization have established diversity and inclusion goals? And 65% said no. Only 35% said yes. That's what are your terrible. thoughts on that one? That's terrible. That is yeah. really, it's really. I, I was surprised by that data. Point. It's really it's still sad. That many no, I'm not surprised yeah. at all. And it's very sad. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think, you know, here the same thing. It's like, wh- whose responsibility is this? Who is, who's engaged in it? Who's involved? Who cares? And I think it's my job to make more people care. I would like to see more line role managers care. And if there aren't programs established 
or processes in place to go back to HR or to the diversity person who was just hired and say, we need more of this. And it's really up to HR and diversity then to push back and say, well, are you willing to take on some of this work? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that it becomes a, a discussion back and forth, but it is very sad that there are no more, more companies that have that practice. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Well, and, and, and you know, our, our hope here is that again, as awareness gets better, that the, these percentages change in the industry. And, and I, I do think that, um, you know, more companies are, you know, paying attention here, which, which is good. Um, well, one one go small thing there. A few years ago, there was a lot of talk about quota. And as we know now, public companies have to have a woman uh, on the board, now two board. women, mm -hmm. and then somebody of color or another minority. And that's kind of quota. I've never been a proponent of quota per se. And I don't think that we should think of these diversity and inclusion programs that all these companies don't have as the equivalent of quota. But we may have to move towards quota if these companies don't move. I mean, this is like, yeah. here's an opportunity, here's an on-ramp for so many companies to establish these practices so that we don't end up in a situation where we have to go and say, now there's a quota in place. Well, you know, I, I will tell you, you know, being intellectually honest here, I, I did a 180 on this, on this topic in terms of my personal perspective and what turned me on this issue, this issue of quota, specifically at the board level, was an interview that I heard with Ursula Burns, right? Who used to lead uh, Xerox, uh, and she did an interview with the Economist, and they 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 hit this topic head on, and they said, "So you know, you serve on Ursula, you serve on tons of boards, you know, you've been a CEO, and what are your what's your perspective on the lack of diversity at the boardroom?" And she said, "You know, she, she said I grew up my whole life, and I was I was never a big believer that we have to have these you know a hard quota here on diversity." She goes, "I think though, after all these years." We're, we're now there and specifically at the board level. So she basically echoed what you just said. Yep. And so I think, I think that, I think we are going to see um, more of the, these laws. And, and, uh, and again, if you would, uh, again, I'm just being very, very honest. If you would ask me a year or two years ago, Thomas, you know, what do you think of this? I'd, I'd be like, gosh, I just don't know if that's the right move, but I'm in a different place now. I think it is the right move um, because there are qualified candidates out there. And, and, you know, and these boards are, are not going to break sort of the profile, right, of who they recruit um, until I think it's it, the issue is forced. And I think I think that's going to be a positive thing for the for, for these companies. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's um, there's a lot more realization of that, I think, everywhere. And also, I mean, the other thing is with with boards in particular, one woman doesn't really make that big of a difference. And it's uh, once you start getting two or three or four or five women into the room, that's when the dynamics- And you start to really change the dynamics. The dynamics yeah. really start yeah. changing and the magic actually happens. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the men who observe this and report back to me and say, I was just in a room where there were four women present and we used to have one, and you cannot imagine the energy in the room. It was entirely different. And it was so cool. Yeah. And so that's what I want everybody. I don't want it to be driven by fear. I don't want people to be forced. But, you know, we need to kind of like wake up and see how, how amazing it is when we mix things up a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'll, I'll just give you one personal experience on that at the board level. So I, I spend time you know, speaking to boards in tech, which are, are very male dominated, 
But at a point in my career, I chaired a nonprofit board, which was, you know, very diverse. And it was probably 60% of the board members were women. And I could see that firsthand, just the dynamics of how that board operated and how they talked through problems and, you know, all that kind of stuff versus when I would be, you know, working with a board in tech, which every person in there, you know, was, was a man. So I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Well, well, Eva, I thanks so much for your intellectually honest responses here today. And I really appreciate you spending time with me. And I really look forward to seeing you on stage in Vegas later this month. And I always like to you know, end these episodes with the big question. And we know that women are securing college degrees at a higher rate than men right now. 56% of all college students are women. So I, I'm gonna ask the same question I did at the beginning of this episode. Moving forward, can successful technology companies afford not to be successful at recruiting and retaining women? Thanks for listening. Thank you. Cheers.